You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Blogging Heads TV. My name is Arya Cohen-Wade, uh, and this is a special crossover edition of Culture Determined uh, featuring Glenn Lowry, who all Blogging Heads viewers and listeners probably know, but Glenn, could you <laughs> introduce yourself uh, just in case they don't? Uh, I'm Glenn Lowry. I'm host of the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv. I'm professor at Brown University of the Social Sciences and of Economics and a colleague of Aria Cohen-Waits. Right. So thanks for agreeing to uh, do this, Glenn. And yeah, this is, yeah, this is like, you know, when the um, X-Men would appear in the Avengers or, or something like that, kind of a crossover, <laughs> crossover thing. Uh, so there's some stuff I wanted to talk to you about. And yeah. we, when we made our agenda, um, other stuff started bubbling up in the news. But let's let's start with something that you've been talking about a lot over the past uh, six months or so on blog ads, which is kind of the affirm- affirmative action issue. And um, I, I re-listened to some of your talks about it, especially the, the uh, particularly the one you did with at Harvard with um, John McWhorter, where yeah. you gave a short presentation about affirmative action. And then, um, you know, I was always kind of like somewhat ambivalent about affirmative action, seeing like pros and cons. Uh, and then this uh, story broke a couple months ago that we all heard of about the um, uh, this scandal involving uh, fraud in college admissions, and you know it caught up yeah. some kind of semi prominent people. Uh, the actress Lori Laughlin and uh, Felicity Huffman were both uh, had you know paid someone to help their children get into a college that they wouldn't have gotten into uh, yeah. otherwise. And uh, kind of the, so the key conduit. So I mean there were two kind of key. Parts of this fraud. One was uh, sending like an imposter in to take the test, take the SAT or whatever for the student. Yeah. So that's kind of a that's like a standard, you know, standard kind of cheating. Um, but then the other was bribing um, athletics officials at the universities yeah. to get a particular student in. And this happened at a number of high profile colleges, um, including my alma mater, Yale, uh, where the uh, women's soccer coach was bribed to get a student in and reportedly like for over a million dollars was, was bribed for, for this amount. And it, you know, it reminded me that, you know, there is not just one sort of preference that is given to potential students who are trying to be admitted into college. There's a couple. So uh, there's some sort of racial preference that's kind of vague, but we all know it's there. And then there's kind of these, you know, um, legacy admissions or, uh, a donor who gives a lot of money, maybe their kid will get in. Jared Kushner got into Harvard. Like, did he really deserve that spot? Impossible to tell, but his father had given a, you know, multi-million dollar donation. And then, yeah, it's it's well known that if you if your parents, one or more yeah. of your parents went to a college, they give you a leg up in admissions. And then there's the, uh, the athletes. And, um, you know, and I think really that's the strangest one because – what what is the real purpose of university athletics? Does this have anything to do with university academics? And we've now seen that the system can be gamed through bribery and falsehood. But why should someone who is good at throwing a ball or whatever um, get a leg up in college admissions and do some of the things that you talked about as you know applying to African American students who get in through some sort of affirmative action? Does that apply to these students? Do they go like you talked about how it's undignified, and um, yeah. you know people in the room might suspect them of not being up to snuff. Um, you know, but when no I- one suspected Jared Kushner of not being up to snuff. 
Well, Maybe they did. But I mean, there's a lot on the table. You say a lot of different things. Um, and I'll get to my reservations about affirmative action in the case of African-Americans. But I want to address the general point, uh, the fraud. So huge amounts of money changing hands and people compromising their integrity in a very fundamental way. And it wasn't just that these incidents happened. It was that there was a middleman broker who made his whole living setting up these things and had connections at various colleges around the country. Uh, this was an industry. Um, and it it is a matter of corruption. There's not any doubt about that. So corruption exists. I mean, corruption is not an argument for more corruption. If you thought that uh, affirmative action was somehow problematic, it wouldn't be the fact that there existed uh, uh, these kind of fraudulent activities wouldn't be an argument for affirmative action. I mean, but it, it would be, it seems to me, a couple of things. One thing it would be would be a clear indication of the value of the discretionary decision that's being made when you decide whom to admit and whom not. People are willing to pay a lot in order to be included. So something really significant is at stake. So that I think this is like a market test of of the weight of what's going on when you decide at the margin someone gets in and someone doesn't. That's a really big deal. Hence, hence, if you're Asian <laughs> and you're living in uh, Southern California in an Asian community and a lot of people in your community are scoring high on these tests and are not getting in, the stakes for you are very high. So I want to say the stakes are very high. It seems to me that's one thing that it, it shows. I don't think it shows that uh, the whole thing's a, a fraud and the idea of merit is 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 simply a cover for uh, power moves. Uh, I don't think it shows that. Uh, I, I do think, though, that there's something in the observation that for some people, it's much more salient that they might have been admitted by means other than purely academic merit. For example, African-Americans who might come into a cloud of suspicion of not being up to snuff. And for other people, it, it wouldn't be because they're not subject to the stigma. So I, I, I take that point. Um, as far as athletics are concerned, I mean, what is the university? So the university is a community. As far as legacy admissions, the idea of building uh, ties within families, as far as uh, receiving donations, are seats for sale? Well, yeah, sort of a little bit because these are philanthropies. You're not going to tell me museums don't take actions with respect to how they curate their collections or that, um, you know, other kind of philanthropic enterprises don't tailor their operations in part in order to cultivate uh, the kinds of support that they need over the long run. Uh, you know, athletics doesn't contribute directly to the academic mission, but it certainly contributes to the institutional robustness by the building the loyalties and so forth and so on. I'm not making an argument for anything. I'm just trying to say it's a complicated, it's a complicated industry with, with all these different things going on. Now, as far as affirmative action for African-Americans is concerned, I'm the, I have one concern and one concern only, which is the large difference in the pre-admission uh, academic qualifications as indexed by the test scores and grades of the students who are being admitted. And my concern is that this correlates with their performance in the institution after the admission. Now, you can tell me either it doesn't matter or it's not true. That is to say, it doesn't matter whether or not they're clustered in the middle or kind of uh, mediocre performance and marginal with a few exceptions. You can say it doesn't matter or you can say it's not true that uh, if you admit a, a large population group with systematically different criteria, much lower cutoff thresholds for evidenced academic mastery before admission, it won't manifest itself in any differences that are worth noting in their post-admissions performance. I don't believe either one of those things. I think it matters and I think it's true. Now, can I prove it? 
I'm not going to make some kind of Amy Wax claim here. You know, the woman who said that she'd never met a black student who was in the top of her class. I've met many, many, many outstanding black students in my years teaching in universities. I'm not trying to categorically, you know, denigrate African-American students who are in these Ivy League universities. I'm simply asking a question. I'm saying if they, if, if a 1400 SAT score is one thing and an 1100 SAT score is another, do we see those kind of systematic differences by race? Does it matter? I think we do, and I think it does. And, I, and, and what I'm concerned about is what do we want? Do we want a regime of equality, or do we want a regime of a kind of dispensation where people are accommodated because we know that that's a part of the thing? I'm very concerned that diversity becomes the rationale for the inclusion of African Americans at these uh, exclusive institutions as if it's the African Americanness. That is the qualifying characteristic, not the, you know, not the uh, mastery over the, the materials that are uh, that are at hand. So so that those are my concerns. Uh, but as far as the scandal is concerned, what is the first message it sends to me is, my God, these seats are worth millions of dollars to people. And it really does matter how you give them out and legitimating the criteria. OK, so the criteria have to be legitimate. People, uh, you know, this argument has. Uh, uh, metastasize into well, we don't want the test. We we don't we don't we want to uh, uh, kind of you know the New York City exam school uh, mm. case uh, would be a, a clear illustration of that, where we we think that the test is the enemy. And I, you know, my mind on that is, gosh, the test is the messenger. Now the test may be imperfect. We can discuss that. But bottom line is, there's information to be had about how people have developed their abilities prior to, et cetera. So. Okay, yeah, there's a lot to respond to. I mean, um, so, I mean, part of it is like, yeah, like, there, there are, this is not just like a, a, a number, a series of classrooms where people are sitting and taking exams. There are all these other parts. It's a community. There are sports, there are arts, there are fancy buildings that are always being constructed, and they need money to, more money than just the tuition payments to keep the whole thing going. Um, you know, so what I, what, uh, my admission to Yale, as far as I know, was not paid for uh, via $1 million, and I wasn't an athlete, so I got in based on, you know, merit. Um, and, you know, one of my uh, sweet mates freshman year was a uh, recruited baseball player, and a guy who lived across the hall was a recruited football player, and another guy who lived across the, call, the hall was a recruited squash player. Um, and yeah. it was clear that, like, they were kind of there for different reasons than the bulk of the students were there, you know, we called them jocks and, uh, and yeah, they were, they were recruited for their athletic ability. Primarily, I assume they had to meet some sort of standard in terms of academics, but it was, it was a lower standard. It was obvious to everyone in in the classroom and out of the classroom, their behavior. Uh, you know, the, the, the men's football, (laughs) men's, uh, the baseball and football teams, they all joined the same frat, which is Deke, which is the same one that Brett Kavanaugh was in also long ago. And, um, and yes, yeah, so, and they kind of like yeah. kept themselves and yeah, you know, they, they threw parties and stuff, but it was just, yeah, it was not even, not, I wouldn't call it open secret. Like you could just tell anyone, any observer could tell that these, this was like a different thing that was happening here. And then like, okay, but this isn't just like the football team and everyone loves football and homecoming is an important community event. Like I said, there was a squash player across the hall and I actually looked at the, um, Yale Athletics page to get the list of teams, and there's a lot. Uh, so we have uh, baseball, basketball, football for men, in addition, golf, ice hockey, lacrosse, co-ed sailing, squash, swimming and diving, 
heavyweight and lightweight crew. And then for wow. for women, there's sailing, fencing, field hockey, gymnastics, ice hockey, <laughs> sailing. There's both co-ed sailing and just sailing. These not are, sure. These and are sports where scholarships are given for these uh, are var- these are varsity athletes. sports at Yale. And then there's in addition, there's like fifty, you know, um, like intramural teams or club teams that um, you know don't get no recruiting, but like the kids just play club soccer or whatever. Okay, so so that's you- a lot of students, and you know, one is forced to ask. Why does Yale have swimming and diving? Women's ice hockey? Like, I didn't, is that even a thing? I guess it's an Olympic sport, but like, you can make a case, I think, for, you know, maybe baseball, basketball, football, and then women's equivalent of basketball, softball, field hockey or something. And then like, get rid of the rest. And let, let it be uh, intramural, but don't make it into a whole industry. Yeah. Well, I, I don't have any feelings about that one way or the other. I, I do though think it's interesting, the proliferation of these sports, and it invites conspiracy theory-like speculation that it's a cover for doing something else or a way of bringing a certain type into the university community who otherwise might not qualify. Well, if you think uh, of who, another who are the... route, I, I wonder if this filters back to the prep school culture. I wonder if we did an ethnography of uh, what these kids, when they're 15 years old, are talking about if they're if they're already you know kind of grooming themselves to get on different tracks because the ultimate goal is uh, a desk at Goldman Sachs, <laughs> right? And the thing I so uh, I think I mentioned this before on the show, a weird quirk at Yale was a lot of the jocks were econ majors and ah, econ. That is and, weird because econ's supposed to be hard. Man. It's supposed to be hard. Like I I never took an econ class, and the reason I heard was that it only required ten mandatory classes instead of the normal twelve mandatory classes. And then also they all took it together. So they like did the problem sets together and stuff. And yeah, they all wanted to work on wall street (laughs) in the end. So it was kind of a um, weird thing there. And I heard at one point the stat that one in six people, uh, undergraduates in every class are recruits for sports. So that's, that's a lot like that. That changes the the tenor of, of campus. And, you know, I, I was an English major. I, I wasn't in many classes where, where like complex equations were happening, but, um, you know, I, I don't remember times where there was like someone in the, in my seminar or whatever, where I was thinking like, oh, that, that person is a ethnic minority. They're only here or racial minority. They're only here because of a special preference or like, I do remember thinking like this kid is a dumb jock. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just here because he plays lacrosse really well, but even not, not, but the other thing that's annoying to the nerdy student is like, they're not even that good. Like the really good ones go to Stanford and Duke or they go to Ohio state because they want to play professionally. Good athletes. Yes. If if you're really good at football, you don't go to Yale, you know, you go to Ohio state. So <laughs> they're, medi- they're mediocre athletes and mediocre students, but they, they're just whatever track has led them, yeah, prep school or whatever, wealthy family. But I think there was a great uh, football player who was a Yale alum, Calvin Hill. Am I wrong mm. about that? That's I think right. I played for the Dallas Cowboys. That's right. But, and, and there was a uh, player, uh, Ron Darling, was a pitcher for the Mets who came from oh, Yale. Oh, so, at uh, Yale? Yeah, it happens every like once every 10 years there's someone <laughs> makes it from Yale, but it's – yeah, it's just like it's okay, like so you can see how this me, built up, but it's it's such a weird system. I was going to just say the question that one might ask then is: Does it matter if for African Americans or people of color, black people, uh, brown mm-hmm. people, that their presence in the university is partly under the color of some not completely quote unquote meritocratic selection process? Is that anything different from more egregious than 
uh, more reason to be concerned about uh, the, the phenomenon that you're describing with respect to athletes. And my gut reaction to that is yes, and my reaction is based upon ethnic pride. And it may this may be actually help me identify the reason why my argument isn't compelling to everybody else, <laughs> which is that I, you know, I have this kind of vision about what black people ought to represent. Maybe I want us to be a little bit like the Jews. Don't tell anyone I said that. I want a lot of Nobel prizes. I want people in the physics department. Uh, I, you know, you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, I want, I want. What do I want? They're going to call this respectability politics somewhere. You know, you know, I want achievement, a quote unquote achievement, achievement. And uh, that's how I get to equality. And that's how I overcome the stigma. So the stigma is the suspicion that overhangs blacks, but probably doesn't overhang, um, you know, white athletes who might have uh, gone to a prep school, uh, which is, you know, as a general matter, you know, you guys aren't quite up to stuff. You know, there's something problematic here. Maybe you're not as smart as we are on the average or whatever. And I want to dispel all of that. Uh, you know, doubt and, and suspicion and, and, and stereotype. And, and, it, and a lot of people might say, why would you respond in that way? Why are you playing that game? You know, you're, they, they, they're saying that you're not smart and you're going to go and show them that you're smart. Why don't you dismiss that question out of hand? This kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's not good enough that there would be an equivalency between African American, uh, beneficial, uh, uh, from affirmative action and let's say, uh, an athlete in a peripheral sport benefiting from it because I really don't care about the reputation of the athlete, but I care about the quote unquote reputation in the eyes of the system of those of us who are uh, people of color who come into these to these elite venues. And even as I say it, I, I begin to have doubts about whether or not <laughs> that argument can be sustained. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm sure. Well, I'm not sure, but I'm guessing that the majority of recruited athletes who graduated from Yale are not like, you know, staying awake at night saying like, am I worthy? Like, did it, was it really my yeah. inner excellence that powered me through this or, or not? Like they're probably I'm totally, sure. totally fine with whatever comes to them later in, in life. And yeah, and no one is like, you know, if you're, if your doctor or something is, was a athlete at an elite college, you're, you know, people aren't going to like know that and think like, oh, I don't want, I don't want an athlete who played squash at Princeton, or I don't want a doctor who played squash at Princeton, whereas like there's this, you know, racist trope that like you wouldn't want a black doctor because they skated through um, just because of their, of their race. Um, but yeah, I think it's like, I don't know. I, I've had some, I had a conversation with this guy, Robbie Suave, who uh, wrote this book called Panic Attack. He's a writer at Reason, and it was about kind of like left-wing radicals on campus, and I mean, one of the things I brought up is like, you know, the, the tuition is like going up every like constantly. And I think this adds to like the pressure cooker aspect of yeah. campuses. And then it's like, well, what is, you know, what are they paying this much money for? I actually just saw today that the University of Chicago is going to be $80,000 um, for undergraduate tuition. And that was the first college to crack that $80,000 mark. Like, what are they getting out of it? Um, wow. is, is it worth is it worth all this? And, you know, a lot of the time it's, it's subsidized through uh, financial aid or loan forgiveness or something. But yeah, what is the, what is the point of this, of the, these like massive things that, that are, play such an important role in, in our lives and they cost so much money and they like judge us whether we're worthy or not. And, um, and then they give you a credential for, for the rest of your life. And is, is it worth all the, so like so much money to, to go to instead of doing something else? Like if someone had said to me, and I think Robbie said this also, you know, the woman who's a young woman whose parents paid a million dollars to get her into Yale, 
why didn't they just give the daughter a million dollars and have her go off and do something interesting with her life? Like, uh, maybe I would have taken a million dollars and said, I'll go to Rutgers instead. You've seen the American Express commercial, right? I mean, some things are priceless. And, <laughs> right. And it, it's actually a very good point. I mean, there are some things, everything's not commensurate. There's some stuff that money can't buy, you know. Right. And we thought that was an Ivy League education was something money can't buy in an explicit sense, but or at least admission. But uh, this scandal showed that because of corruption. It, well, it no, is. the fact that it's a scandal showed that basically you can't buy it. I mean, you might be able to cheat the system, but you're cheating the system. The structure of the system is that there's an honor which is only really legitimate if it's earned on a criterion other than put forking over cash. So, so I mean, I, I that's what impresses me very greatly about the fact that people took such risks and 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 went to such elaborate lens. I mean, if you've got tons of money, maybe a few hundred thousand doesn't uh, mean that much to you if you get what you want. But the risk involved is 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 very substantial, as we all know now. Yeah, and then there was this question of like, you know, if your parents are Felicity Huffman and William H Macy, you know, like B list Hollywood celebrities. You know, you'll probably have a fine life, whatever education you get. Um, do, you know, do you need to cheat the system to do it, or could you just, you know, go to like UCLA instead of USC? Isn't this, isn't this bragging rights for parents? Isn't this parents yeah, that, want to be able to tell a narrative about what their kid is doing in life? Yeah, that's part of it. And you know, the the bumper stickers for that say Yale University that you know my mom put on her car and yeah, yeah. Um. Okay, do you have, before we move topics, do you have anything else on, on this one you want to you want to add? Uh, no, not not really. I mean, you asked the question in the pre discussion about class based affirmative action, mm-hmm. and and I you know I think it raises the question of what are the criteria for selection into a, a, into an elite university environment, and you know this idea of what is merit and all of that, and uh, also you know what kind of community are you trying to create, and certainly the 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 uh, fact of a very highly stratified system of status reproduction where the people who end up getting into these gatekeeper institutions come vastly predominantly from the upper few percentage of the uh, income distribution and such is not, you know, there's something very problematic about that. I mean, some, you know, at some sense unjust about it. That's not the way you want to have your society ordered. So, so I, I think a, um, you know, a kind of uh, a merit-based uh, uh, financial uh, situation where if you're good enough to get in, you should be able to go, and then we'll work out a deal about how we're going to do that is kind of is kind of the way to go. Now, do I think that people should get credit in the sense of you've got a somewhat lower academic profile, but you're from a lower-class family, and so we're going to take you in? I, I suppose within reason, I don't see a reason to – I don't see any uh, problem with that either. Uh it would invoke some of the same concerns that I have about racial affirmative action, how how big is the gap and all of that. Uh, the institution has to protect its own interest, right? It's supposed to be elite. Scalia said this in one of those Supreme Court arguments a long time ago. I thought it was a very profound thing. He told the University of Michigan Law School, if you didn't want to be an elite school, you wouldn't have to do an affirmative action. And I thought it was a deep point. That is, uh, they are premised on elitism, which is exclusionary. They're premised on the idea that only the best of the best. And then when there are racial differences in the other criteria, they have to do racial affirmative action because they also want racial diversity, which is fine. But the idea is it's elite. So how much would I compromise that in the interest of class egalitarianism? That that becomes a, you know, don't I still want it? I mean, 
I still want it to be rarefied. I, I still want it to be, you know, at, at some level esoteric and intellectually challenging and, you know, by definition, not something that everybody drawn at random from the population is going to flourish in doing. That's that's kind of the definition of the enterprise. So I just want those are things I would add on the affirmative action uh, question. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, a, commu- a community college wouldn't have affirmative action, we could assume, because they just let everybody in um, sure. pr- pretty much. So, right. yeah. Um, yeah, I think the you know, the I think the. I, I think, like, politically, I'm surprised there has been more push for, like, Democrats to switch to advocating uh, a class-based system instead of a racial system. Like, it just seems like smarter politics. And I guess there's, you know, parts, like, parts of the base, like, uh, black voters maybe are, would be opposed to that. But it seems like just smarter politics and would maybe do a little something to, uh, you know, take down the tensions that, or the backlash kind of feelings that some, like, poor white people feel like that these are those other groups over there are getting the preferences and we're not getting anything from the government or whatever. Well, of course the Democrats are going in the opposite direction with the discussion about reparations. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be smarter politics on affirmative action, but it might not be smarter politics across the board because race neutrality and class, not race is a kind of anti identity politics mantra. I mean, you know, uh, the next thing you know, you're going to want me to say all lives matter. <laughs> Um, I would never ask you to say that, Glenn. Um, but yeah, but you see, especially, you know, among the younger left, where more people are coming out of the socialist tradition than the, than the identity politics tradition, there are people who are like, no class is what really matters. Everything else is this, you know, facade. And, um, so that's, that's kind of like the intramural, uh, fight on the left. Okay. Why don't we talk about Trump, um, who, you know, it's impossible not to talk about. So the thing I originally wanted to talk about was like, does it matter that Trump is a bad person? Like, is this, is this important? Does it matter? Like, you know, he's racist. We all know, is he racist? Is he racist? Whatever. Does it matter? And then he, I, I proposed this idea before his latest comments about sending, you know, <laughs> yeah. Ilhan Omar and Send other, back. Yeah. sending people back to wherever they came from, even though yeah. three of the four women <laughs> come from the United States. So that, I mean, that is like, I, I don't know, this, that, I think that that specific statement and the things he's been doing the past week are really like some of the worst things he's said, um, in his public career. And it's, you know, the, the thing he said about the, the judge who was Mexican American, who wouldn't, he's like, that guy won't give me a fair shake because I'm Mexican American or because he's a Mexican American. Uh, and you know, I, I yeah. want to build the wall. That was pretty bad. And then I think this one is worse. Um, but also like, you know, a lot of the, you know, it seems like a lot of people on the right have made their peace with Trump being personally yeah. not a good Christian or whatever. And, um, yeah, but like, does this does this matter? Like, uh, in a lot of ways, he kind of is doing the same stuff that if Ted Cruz had been elected, like a lot of the policies would be the same, probably the same too. Supreme Court justices would have been nominated, uh, maybe less emphasis on immigration control, but you know, the same economic policies largely. Um, so, like, does does the fact that this guy who was obviously a bad person and you know cheats on his wife with porn stars and Playboy playmates? And, uh, yeah, it's just this strange, awful person that you wouldn't like put in charge of your 401k or something. Like, it doesn't, that doesn't matter at all that, that he's the president. And then just the last thing I'll add, there's a, um, podcast, I think, uh, what was it called? I think it's called Slow Burn that Slate put out that the first season was about Nixon's impeachment and the second season was about Clinton's impeachment. 
And I was a teenager during the Clinton impeachment, but it's one of the first like political things that I paid attention to as it was happening in the mid nineties. And they go back and, you know, they're interviewing people. They didn't get to interview Lewinsky, but they interviewed, um, Tripp and, um, Ken Starr was interviewed, I think. So a number of, so it's an interesting podcast, And but they talk a lot about, um, Bill Bennett as a major character and, um, you know, he was really campaigning on, against Clinton on these, like, purely moral grounds. Like, if we let this go, <laughs> this guy who told an obvious lie, then, like, yeah. where are we as a society? And then, you know, 20 years later, there's this moral cretin uh, <laughs> in office, and I haven't heard... Oh, with the gambling habit and all that kind of stuff? I, I Well, I haven't heard I haven't heard the, like, moral outrage from the right. So it, there's one thing, it's like, oh, it's all just performance, it's all just cynical like people are just gonna do whatever just to get their side ahead and you know the fact that clinton was you know treated treated women badly and had an affair we'll hit him for that but if trump obviously treats women badly and has affairs like well that's fine because he's giving us the judges we want so okay this is kind of rambling but yeah did you do you think it matters that trump is this amoral or immoral person okay so (laughs) uh It's a provocative question. It's an interesting question. Okay, so there's, I mean, how bad is Trump? So is he a racist, quote unquote, and misogynist? And how does he treat women? And did he does he steal and uh, swindle his business partners? And uh, is he a traitor to the country? Can he be trusted with the crown jewels of American democracy and so on? So how bad is, you know, what kind of monster have we put into the White House? Uh, As I observed, the Never Trump uh, movement or whatever it is, kind of. I saw Bill Crystal at a dinner not long ago here at Brown where he came up for an event. And he was, I say with respect, because I admire Bill Crystal as an operative on the right in American politics, a shadow of his former self. Of course, the Weekly Standard had just shuttered mm-hmm. uh, and whatnot. And, and it's, it's become, and I, I'm his Twitter uh, confederate, so I, hear, I see what he's putting up. And he's just one guy, okay, and I don't mean to single him out, except everybody knows who he is. Uh, it's pathetic. It's kind of exhausted. It's kind of... A sad thing. And I, and what keeps it going? I kept asking myself, what keeps it going? What keeps it going is, you know, the max boots of the world and the, I mean, we could name names. What keeps it going is just kind of this guy's just so despicable. He's just such a cretin. He's just such a horrible person to be in the White House. It's bad for our country and so forth and so on. And, and I do see this at some level as an extension of the right wing Republican revulsion and the moral majority revulsion to Bill Clinton over the Monica Lewinsky thing is a kind of, you know, we got politics going on. We're fighting over huge things like who's on the Supreme Court uh, and we're winning or we're losing. Uh, but we got this guy and this guy and he's in the White House. He's he's in the Oval Office and he's doing these awful things. So so I don't know what I just said adds up to. I see how it's important to people. I often think it's a silly question when you ask me, if, is Trump a racist? I often think it's like almost like trying to decide whether or not somebody is a terrorist or something like that, because it's like we have this moral uh, standard and we're not going to assign and we're going to judge people who's a racist, who's not a racist. I, it, it, it's a certain kind of card that I'm I'm not especially in a mode of playing. And moreover, I, I worry that it is uh, playing into the president's hands. I mean, let's stipulate that he's a racist, quote unquote, whatever we mean by that. Let's stipulate that he's a bad man, that he doesn't share our values about uh, certain racial questions. I mean, what really matters is who's on the Supreme Court and who's going to win this election uh, coming up in November 2020 
and uh, what's the economic policy and what are going to be the foreign policy doctrine, what's going to be our relationship to Western Europe, uh, what is the trade regime going to look like at China in 10 years, and things like this. These are the things that actually, actually matter. Um, and uh, he, 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 so the, 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 the culture war resentments, I think, that a lot of people who might vote for Trump harbor are easy to to tweak. He says he wants to put uh, military gear on the street in Washington, D.C. during the 4th of July, and a lot of people scream about it. And I get it. I mean, I live on the East Coast. I'm in the Northeast here. I get that why that's all bad. That's all bad. But, you know, out in America, my guess is a lot of people are wondering, you know, you really don't want to just celebrate the country? Um, Colin Kaepernick wants to take a knee on the Fed Center. I could go on. You see what I'm getting at? Mm-hmm. Reparations? Really? The country is built on plunder. That's your story about America. Um, the uh, uh, backlash resentment against racialized discourse, and he's playing right into it. So call me a racist if you want. It's almost as if he wants to say, yeah, I'm a racist by your calculation because everybody's a racist by your calculation. Nancy Pelosi's a racist by your calculation. Joe Biden's a racist by your calculation. Uh I don't want foreigners coming across the border without authorization. You're the one who made that into a racial conversation. You want to play your race cards? I'll play my race cards too, something like that. So you you ask me, does it matter that he's a bad person? I'm saying let's stipulate he's a bad, quote unquote, a bad person. He won't be the first bad person to occupy the White House. Is he the worst? I suppose that's debatable. He's bad. Okay, he's a bad person. (laughs) Secondly, what work is done politically by calling somebody a bad person? I think it's all about making me feel better than the person that I just called a bad person. There's something almost self-righteous about it. You don't think they're any black racist? You don't think Al Sharpton's a racist? <laughs> For example, I mean, I'm not, you know, I mean, American rhetoric is suffused with racialized white people are bad people. I've heard, how many categorical dismissals of white males have I heard? How much racism have I heard coming out of the mouth of Ta-Nehisi Coates? Quote-unquote racism. Y'all get mad at me if you want to, but I'm just saying the discourse is suffused with contested racial, um, uh, moral, uh, and ethical claims. Some people think opposition to affirmative action is racist. Some people think affirmative action is racist. (laughs) So is he a racist? Probably. By some calculation, all oh, the Central Park Five. I mean, you know, you tried out this thing in the 1970s. His company was held. Was, you know, I mean, I almost want to shrug. I don't even know really what they're talking about. I, 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 I think it's a kind of, you know, a moral self congratulation that we engage in around these issues. Uh, you know, so uh, anyway, that's what I think. And so my answer is no. Uh, I don't think it matters. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know where I land. I, I think he's a despicable person. I think like this thing he's he's said in the past week, you know, telling four uh freshman congresswomen who all happen to not be white to go back to where they came from is like is like plainly racist. But like I I feel like there's a sense on the left that like once we get something that's so obviously racist, then we'll just be like Trump, you are racist. And then like something will happen. Um, like he'll shrivel, you know, like the Wicked Witch of the West or something. But like, we all know it. It's not a, we, we process this at this time, like either you see him as the bad person he is or you're in denial about it because of whatever reason. Well, let, let me try this on you, uh, Ari. Suppose he says, I never mentioned their race. 
I never said that they were brown or that they were black. I just said that they should go back where they came. Suppose he says something outrageous. I realize it's outrageous. I realize it's outrageous. <laughs> but he wouldn't. I mean, he would have never said that about you know so, some uh, no, a, a white I, woman. I, I he would have never said. Go back. Our conclusion that it's racist relies upon the idea that most decent people would have internalized the fact of the minority female status of these people and would have forsworn engaging in certain kind of uh, arguments. Just like, just like I'm not going to bring up a dual loyalty question when I'm talking to somebody about Israel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that that would be, you know, like, and I'm not going to do it. And if I do it, a person is going to call me anti-Semitic. Now, there's some theoretical abstract thing where I can say, well, in principle, there could be the possibility of dual loyalty or whatever, but I'm not going to do it. I know I'm not going to do it. I internalize that. If I don't internalize it, I'm, a, I'm quote unquote, an anti-Semite. Likewise here. And like I said, I think, I think he knew he, what he was doing when he did it. Well, I mean, I, I have various theories about Trump and, you know, one of them is like the early stage dementia theory that he doesn't really know what's going on as well as he would have 10 years ago. Kind of, you know, I mean, he watches a lot of TV. We know that he repeats the things he sees on TV, either on Twitter or to his aides and he'll just like reverse himself. And one time, one day he's saying X and the next day he's saying not X and, you know, whatever. So that's part of it. I mean, another is just like, like, okay, so he's, he's personally immoral. Like we know, like, I think we know that. Uh, but in terms of politics, I think he's kind of almost like amoral. If, if there's the, actually is a difference there, like he doesn't take morality into into consideration in any way. It's just like he's doing what he needs to do to like get into the next day to keep his base supporting him and to get the people on t- Fox News to say something good about him. Um, so there's no like moral compass that he <laughs> he has that he is keeping to. It's all like self interest. And I think it's more, you know, it's, it's like a weird, um, almost a throwback to like, you know, like a monarchical rule where it's just like the, the King Donald is there and he issues his proclamation and everyone scurries around trying to figure out how to implement it. And then maybe tomorrow he forgets about it or tomorrow he reverses it and everyone scurries around. And I mean, some things are happening, but many things are not, re- are not really happening. And the, the parade with the tanks ended up being like the tanks didn't even like roll through. They were like on pieces of wood, you know, on the ground. And like, you could look at them through the gate. So it wasn't, um, you know, the massive show of military force that he envisioned. It was just like this kind of weird, you know, weird thing that caused lots of like Pentagon officials to (laughs) tear their hair out. And they ended up with a couple like tanks, you know, stationary near the Washington monument. So then, and then it's just the farcical aspect of it of like, yeah, this guy who's a clown is, is uh, the most powerful person in the, in the country. Um, and I throw up my hands at that one and just be like, so, I mean, he's causing uh, a lot of uh, human suffering, especially on the border, but at other time terms, it's just like, yeah, this is absurd. This is. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. Do you think that the crisis at the border is about uh, non-white people uh, not being wanted in the country? In um, terms of being non-white. Well, what's I think racial, it's. What's the racial dimension? Well, I think it's. I think it's complicated. Obviously, um, you know, most of the people crossing the border are um, Hispanic and are right now are coming from like uh, you know Guatemala and Honduras. Um, I think Trump doesn't like people who aren't white. Um, he's okay with foreigners. I mean, he's been married to two foreigners, but he, um, he doesn't like non-white people, especially non-white people in other countries. Um, and yeah, I mean the, so he's, so, I mean, there's a kind of, you could say there's kind of a kind of like principled anti-immigration policy that one could have of, you know, you need a national border. People come in and undercut the the wage labor of 
lower class Americans and we need to stop that. That's kind of the case that Mickey Kaus has made um, for like supporting Trump's immigration policies. And then there's just the, um, you know, the sort of like organizational incompetence angle where they're stuffing all these people into buildings that were not built to house a lot of people. They were like temporary holding facilities. And the before it was basically like the border patrol would catch someone crossing the border illegally and give them a court date. And then either they would show up for court or they would kind of blend into society and they were never seen again. But if they didn't yeah. commit a crime, then like, you know, this is a giant country, you know, a few more people coming in really matter. Um, so, but yeah, I think like if, you know, if the masses of people coming across the border were coming like from Canada into the Pacific Northwest or something, and they were all white Canadians, like, I think this would play differently because the average white American is less scared of a, of a white Canadian than of a brown uh, person from Central America. Well, the average Canadian who's white is speaking English and probably has a post-high school uh, education, so on and so on. Mm-hmm. I take the point. I take the point. I, I don't disagree with what you said. Uh, I, I was going to say, though, that I read this piece in the New York Times this morning about European efforts to control the uh, flow of unauthorized migrants. And uh, the, the sort of headline of the story was uh, Europe and Australia have adopted methods that are not dissimilar to things that the uh, Trump administration is doing or want to do. One of those is having interdicting uh, migrants and having them uh, held and apply for asylum or whatever in third countries. Uh, Libya has become such a way station. Uh, another is modulating the degree of rescue effort for distressed vessels in the Mediterranean. So the governments are deciding how much manpower and resources to put into responding to uh, distress calls from these vessels or whether or not to allow the uh, salvage vessels to put into port. And uh, these are, uh, you know, these are pretty rough things. These are, uh, I can imagine what a, a detention camp in Libya looks like. It's probably not very pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm not justifying anything by invoking this. What I'm trying to do is describe, it seems to me, what is an intrinsic popula- a problem. You say it's a big country and we can take a few more people. Of course, at some level, that's that's obviously true. But if I had a flow and, you know, the flow right now is running over a million a year, if I'm not mistaken, if I were to have that flow for 10, 15, 20 years without restraint, it would actually have a big impact on the nature of the country. And it's it's certainly got to be legitimate to ask whether or not that's a desirable thing and then to take actions based on our answer to that question. And it can't be racist, can possibly be racist to say I'm not so sure that I want 2 million people or 5 million people every decade or something like that for the foreseeable future coming into the U.S. population for Central America. I don't think that's good for our country. I, I don't, I'm not sure why that is a, a, a implausible thing to say. I mean, that would be my default position, to be honest with you. I mean, just, you know, my default position would be, no, that's probably not the path forward into the 21st century that America wants to follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, now refugees is a different matter. People claiming asylum, people seeking, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, you do have to have some kind of understanding about, you know, humanitarian and so forth. So, you know, in, anyway, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it, it's definitely one of the biggest problems that, uh, you know, Western countries are going to be dealing with <laughs> this century, especially if, like, the climate changes climate change. and, and more and more people are trying to move yeah. out of, like, the 
equatorial region. I mean, the, um, yeah. And one of the ironies of it is, you know, um, more and more like it, it, it really helps right-wing politics to have poor people from, from the, from the third world trying to get into first world countries. Like it it seems like Brexit, you know, Brexit wouldn't have happened. One of the main reasons that the European governments is so concerned to control these flows because they afraid, afraid that it feeds a reactionary domestic politics. Yeah, and you know, Europe has moved right since like the Syrian refugee crisis has happened, and Brexit seems like a reaction to you know wanting to get out of the EU so that migrants uh, from uh, Africa and the Middle East can't can't um, can't just walk can't, in. can't just move there. So yeah, so it's yeah, it's super complicated. I still think the you know the way I mean the the things we're seeing like show that um, they weren't the policy was half baked. They weren't ready to actually deal with this. They, and like, you know, there's just not physically the space to house all these people. Uh, separating children from their parents or guardians seems like totally immoral and crazy to me. Um, and, and the people who work for the border patrol, like are not like, there's actually an article that I read that I can link to that was in Politico that was about all the ways that the border patrol has been poorly managed since it was created in 2003. Um, you know, but there was like a merging of other agencies that existed then uh, when the Homeland Security Department was created. And it's been poorly run pretty much throughout, including through the Obama years. Um, and a lot of the people who work there, there was a uh, like they went on like a massive hiring spree to like bulk up this new organization, thinking they needed like 20,000 more people than they actually had. They had like 2000 when it was created. And the, and they were the idea was like, you're going to be like guarding the border, going after terrorists and drug smugglers and stuff. Like these people were were not intended or equipped to be caring for small children, to be like addressing the uh, like health needs of people packed into small spaces. Uh, And, and there's a lot of crazy stuff about, you know, like use a force. And there was a serial killer who was a member of the, of the border patrol who was caught in the last year. So this it's it's possibly the worst, it's possibly the worst managed federal agency and it's confronting a legitimate crisis, but it's still so, pretty poorly. I actually want information here on the separation of children. My understanding was that uh, this is, quote, unquote, required if you don't want to release the parents because you're not able to detain the children beyond a certain length of time. So they don't want to release the parents. So the children is separated from the parents. But the alternative would be to not uh, uh, detain the parents as well, which would then uh, create, I'm going to say the word incentive, I come with a child, I'm basically going to not be detained because the child can't be detained Mm -hmm. and they can't take the child away from me. And I, you know, that's, that's a problem, right? Yeah. I think it's, it's not, it's not easy to solve this. Um, But again, I go back to, you know, what, well, I mean, from like a utilitarian point of view, if you're separating the the child from the, from the parents or guardians and you're keeping them in these uh, subpar conditions, uh, instead of like sending them to their aunt who's a U.S. citizen, um, immediately or, or something, or just letting them stay with the adults who know how to care for them instead of a government bureaucrat. Um, it's, it just seems like they're, uh, you know, they're, they're making a, a big mistake on like humanitarian grounds. Yeah. Um, okay. Why don't we talk to this, uh, this other topic that I had that came to mind from listening to your, I think your last conversation with John McWhorter, where you got, you got to talking about some of the, um, people who used to be kind of allied with, um, and these are kind of like the uh, neoconservatives in the domestic sense, not the less the Bill Crystal invade Iraq neoconservatives, more the 
yeah. people who were around like Commentary Magazine and the Manhattan Institute and City Journal. And you're discussing yeah. some of these people and you had kind of a personal and professional falling out with some of them. And I was wondering like, so, okay, a lot of these people are essentially, uh, some of them are no longer alive. Some of them are right. very old or at the end of their career. And like, what, you know, has this sort of part of the conservative movement, like, which I, I as I understand it was like an intellectual reaction against like failed or seemingly failed liberal policies in the sixties and seventies, primarily around like urban issues and race. Um, yeah. you know, what, what happened to these people? It seems like they didn't, you know, like Irvin crystal had bill crystal <laughs> and bill crystal still around, but he cared about foreign policy and, uh, you know, Norman Podhoritz had John Podhoritz, but again, he pro- primarily cared about, um, foreign policy. And then the domestic part seems like it's kind of like faded away and, and like Heather McDonald, I guess is one person who still, I, I maybe fits into this group. Uh, I think she's at the Manhattan Institute, but yeah. I, I just feel like no one, like Trump doesn't care about this stuff. Uh, does anyone on the right still care about what's happening in these issues? Or are they just like, you know, screw it. We're going to go do our own thing. We don't care about this. Well, well, I, I think it's a big, it's a big broad template. It's a lot of different issues that are on the table. So for example, I, I would include James Q. Wilson, the political scientist, the late uh, political scientist, uh, within this uh, this kind of pantheon, uh, his issue was crime and punishment. Uh, he had a book in the 1970s called Thinking About Crime, a collection of essays that was influential, in which he argued that there was a swing up in the crime wave through the 60s, which was true, that uh, it was in part a response to bad incentives because people were unlikely to be caught and punished. Uh, and that it had uh, deleterious consequences for communities and for law-abiding people, and that policy should be shifted. Policy was shifted. Uh, in retrospect, now we call it the era of mass incarceration, and people are apologizing for it. But the 1994 crime bill uh, that everyone is denouncing nowadays in the Democratic Party that Bill Clinton signed into law was uh, that Joe Biden voted for, that Hillary Clinton supported, uh, it was a kind of intellectual godchild of, uh, of James Q. Wilson. Charles Murray is another person who doesn't fit just automatically into the neoconservative because he's not Jewish. <laughs> uh, he's not from New York City, uh, but, and he's a conservative, he's a libertarian. I mean, now that he has reached his full uh, ideological expression, we don't think of Murray as a neoconservative. We think of him more as a paleoconservative. Mm-hmm. But but in the day when he was at the Manhattan Institute writing his book, Losing Ground, back in the 80s, arguing that we had a war on poverty and poverty won and that the incentives of the welfare system were all screwed up and that um, uh, we actually were uh, producing more misery and more poverty by inducing people into patterns of life that were not self-sustaining. Um, his uh, vision of the world actually prevailed. Uh, in the 1996 uh, Omnibus uh, Budget Reconciliation and Welfare Act, whatever it was called, I can't remember exactly what it was called. It has some complicated acronym, but it was welfare reform. Mm-hmm. Welfare reform eliminated the entitlement. I could go on, but you see what I'm saying. I'm saying I think it's I think it's uneven. I think it's uneven. Uh, Nathan Glazer, uh, he was the guy that wrote this book, critical of affirmative action. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Affirmative discrimination, and it was kind of scandalous on the left. Nathan Glazer, but he also over time uh, evolved into a point where 
uh, he could uh, kind of write this book, what he called uh, We're All Multiculturalists Now, where he kind of, you know, uh, kind of accepted the idea that uh, identity uh, considerations were going to be a fundamental element and that he uh, was wrong with Moynihan in that early book from the 60s, Beyond the Melting Pot, to think that African-Americans could assimilate into the society in any way similar to the ways that the uh, East European or Southern European uh, immigrants had assimilated, the Irish had assimilated. So I, I think it's like on the ideas front, I think there's some huge victories, I think, quote unquote, victories for the neoconservative domestic policy vision, the kind of vision that was being touted in the public interest magazine, not not just like in commentary, but you know, where uh, questions were raised about the efficacy of rehabilitative programs, where questions about urban renewal and all these kind of ambitious interventions in the housing market and all that, questions of this sort were being... I think, I think those policy arguments have stood up pretty well. Um, someone else I think of from that era, Abigail Thernstrom, uh, uh, whose book, uh, Whose Votes Count, uh, was a criticism of the Voting Rights Act it was a criticism not of the act, not of addressing the question of poll taxes and such. It was a criticism of the drawing of congressional districts with the intent to ensure a majority of minority voters so that you could elect a person of color to Congress, a gerrymandering on behalf of racial representation. Uh, and it had within it, uh, I thought, an idea, and the idea has been completely defeated. And the idea was that we don't want to ground our political representation ideas primarily in terms of race and ethnicity. We have many things that are interest, you know, in terms of our uh, geographic distribution, our uh, class location, our uh, what industries we're involved in, what, you know, uh, where we're pro-life or pro-choice, we're religious or we're whatever. I mean, there are a lot of things that you can organize politics around in. To make race an essential characteristic of political representation is a mistake. That I take to be the core idea of Abigail Thurston's critique. It's been completely repudiated. Completely. So, uh, you know, I think it's a mixed, I think it's a mixed bag. Uh, I do think though that the, you know, people didn't reproduce themselves. I mean, with respect, again, with respect, uh, Bill Crystal is no Irving Crystal, uh, and John Podhoritz is no Norman Podhoritz. I, th- I mean, with respect to these people, I'm not saying, you know, they're bad people or they're weak or something, but I'm just saying, you know, I'm just saying what I'm saying. <laughs> right. And there's this weird, um, like, literal reproduction of some of the neoconservatives um, who uh, – who had children who continued on in their vein. I fa- actually, I found out within the last year that I'm related through marriage to, um, Midge Decker. Um, Oh, are you? <laughs> yes. A-, a cousin's husband, his last name is Decker. And I think he's the nephew of Midge Decker or something. Midge Decker, it was, uh, Horitz's wife. What? Right. Yeah. Well, Midge Decker was the wife of Norman Podhoritz. And I might, I should say she was an intellectual force in her own right. Uh, I mean, you know, she she was just every bit as much as equal as any woman was going to be. Um, okay, so yeah, so they had literal heirs, um, but are there contemporary like intellectual heirs? Like, I, I kind of it kind of seems like maybe aside from some issues related to like education with charter schools and like the police issue is still a, li- a live one. So maybe they won the battles, and so they didn't need like a next generation to keep on fighting. But it kind of seems like the Republicans, the conservative movement has kind of like given up on a lot of these issues and kind of just see it as like, these are the blue, they're going to, you know, they're voting blue. 
we're never going to get these people. You know, who cares? Yeah, like, let them let, let them do their own thing, and what we'll, we have our own parts of the country. You don't hear anything about uh, compassionate conservatism of the sort that you heard from George W. Bush <laughs> back in two thousand. Uh, and I think the Iraq war probably needs to factor in here. I mean, the neoconservatives were a diverse group, but there was a kind of, you know, a heavy Jewish presence and there was a lot of concern about Israel and there was a lot of hawkishness on the foreign policy side. And, uh, you know, those, those ideas fed into, uh, the brain trust that, uh, that sold that war to us. And in retrospect, it was a historical disaster of monumental proportions. So a lot of people have been discredited as as a consequence of that, um, but it, it's a you know I, I knew a lot of these people. I'm thinking that it might be worthwhile to sit down and try to systematically sort through you know uh, kind of a, a summing up you know what 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 has come of all of this uh, of all of this. Yeah, I think it's just like I don't know. It's it's. Uh, the, the era in which they were, they had influence, you know, I, w- I wasn't like a political observer during that time, but it seems like, you know, uh, people recognized on both sides that there were, um, like problems in urban areas, problems with, um, urban government and problems with, um, you know, r- these kind of race relations that need to be dealt with. And then like the liberals had one idea and the, and the, neoconservatives had like the opposing idea but they still like kind of had the idea that like it mattered like it mattered what was happening in cities and inner cities whereas now it's like you know i mean trump is a creature of of a city obviously um but like he doesn't care what happens in the bronx you know he doesn't well, care what you know, happens that's anything that doesn't there was affect actually him at all. this this uh sort of scene uh it was the 50th anniversary dinner for Commentary Magazine, and I think the year was 1995. And they had an event at Harvard, and then they had a dinner at the Hasty Pudding uh, in Harvard Square afterwards. And uh, Norman uh, Podhoritz, of course, was at center stage, Commentary Magazine. He had been the editor all those decades. And Midge Dechter and, and uh, Neil Cazadoy, people around Commentary, were present, as well as many people who had written for the magazine over the years, myself being one of them. And uh, Norman uh, made uh, a kind of uh, keynote in which he said, basically, let's retire the concept of neoconservatives. We're all conservatives now. <laughs> and, the, and the neo is not useful. And I entered into a little colloquy with him over that. It was friendly, but it was it was intense. And, and I said, no, you can't be telling me that. I mean, I didn't sign up for conservatism. This is Glenn Lowry, 1995. What I signed up for was this idea, you know, we're the liberals who've been mugged by reality. We don't believe in magic. We're no longer going along with all of these nostrums. We're hard-headed. We believe in incentives. You know, we, we know that there are limits, et cetera. Um, and we want to be realistic, and, and we want to not lose our heads to some kind of radical chic, uh, whatnot. But we do care about the problem. We're just disagreeing with the liberals about how to solve the problem. To me, the move from neoconservatism to conservatism was not intellectually substantive. It was it was somehow ethically substantive. It was a it was like saying, I don't know how to solve the problem, and I'm okay with that. Let's move on. Next case. You know, it was a little bit like that. It was a, let, let's move on to uh, the Cold War uh, or whatever it might be. You know, let, let's because uh, uh, this is not anything that really concerns us. There's, there's nobody to work with on the other side. 
They hate our guts. They hate America. Uh, let's move on. And I wasn't, at least at that time, ready to accept that. I found that to be deeply problematic. And that was part of my my own little personal kind of break with folks. Partly happened because I thought they were too interested in wagging their fingers in the faces of wrongheaded liberals, telling them about how dumb they were than they were in actually trying to help uh, the people who were at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see anyone who is someone who's not like in the last stage of their career or retired who carries a spanner? Like would McDonald be one of them? Well, I mean, Heather is formidable. I mean, uh, I think that has to be conceded. Uh, I don't know how she classify herself, uh, but the, the, the kind of policy critique that she's offering, for example, uh, her book before last, I think was called the war, the war on cops. And it was a post-Ferguson meditation on the deleterious consequences of cracking down on police departments in the interest of Black Lives Matter type concerns, because police were going to basically withdraw from, uh, you know, engaging out of a self-protective uh, act, since they know that nobody's going to support them. And this this leads to more crime. That's a classical kind of neoconservative type argument. Uh, the most recent book of Heather McDonald's, if I'm not mistaken, is called The Diversity Delusion. And there she's got a wholesale attack on the university's efforts to try to bring about social justice and equity by gender, by race, and so on. And, and it's very, uh, it's very arch. Uh, she's smart. Uh, she's data driven. Uh, she's uh, acerbic. Uh, she's fearless. Uh, she, she, I think, would be very much fitting within the uh, this kind of. Uh, a definition of a certain kind of social critic. But I don't know if she'd call herself a neoconservative. She might just call herself a conservative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, something that's interesting is, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Never Trump people, Crystal, Max Boot. I mean, I think a, a lot of, there's been a, so there were the Never Trump people who started in, tw- in like 2015, 2016, and there was that National Review cover store, cover package against Trump. And I, as far as I can tell, the people who have stuck to that banner um, are, more likely the Jewish neoconservative types. And then a lot of other people who didn't like Trump at first kind of have made their peace with him. And now like Eric Erickson is one person of red state. He was anti-Trump at first. And, and just in the past week or two, he, some, something set him off that he was like, yeah, okay, I'm donating money to Trump's reelection. Whereas I think a lot, you know, uh, David Brooks is, is still against Trump. Um, I think Jonah Goldberg is still against Trump. Who, who else am I thinking of? Um, uh, Jennifer Rubin. Uh, yeah, I think there is something about the um, the Jewish conservatives uh, see something in Trump that the non-Jewish conservatives don't see, where the non-Jewish conservatives can make their peace with him, <coughs> and the Jewish conservatives are like, no, this is, you know, I mean, I think Boot formally, like, renounced his Republican Party affiliation. There is, like, I mean, especially Bob Wright has a theory that some of these people are just playing, being part of the resistance so they can, you know, get on TV and or get like their hawkish foreign policy inserted into the democratic party instead of the Republican part party that they used to. Uh, but, and then there's some, you know, there are Jewish conservatives who really like Trump because he basically is just giving a blank check to Israel and letting them do whatever he wants. and doesn't pressure Israel at all in regards to the Palestinians. Okay. Um, but I don't know. I see, I see more, I see more um, steadfast conservative anti-Trumpism from the Jewish neocon. Than, than any other group. Well, 
you had on the list of things that we might talk about uh, at the start, uh, what would the GOP look like after Trump? And it seems to me that's kind of the question. The never Trumpers are either marginal footnotes or submarginal footnotes in the in the whole story. It seems to me Trump wins re-election. Uh, the irrelevancy of that whole uh, expression, will, you know, is just going to be uh, just as clear as day. If he gets defeated, uh, maybe they'll get a little bit of a second win. But I, but I think the air's out of that. Um, but I think the the issues. Okay, so like. Uh, Steve Bannon. So I'm talking about populism. I'm talking about America first. I'm, I'm talking about a kind of robust uh, uh, sense of American nationalism and American national interest. The American people. Who are the American people? How do we define the American people? Uh, you know, uh, <sighs> That it seems to me like that idea is going to be much more prominent in uh, GOP politics. The uh, embrace, I mean, the, the I guess maybe it had been going on for some time, but now the kind of total embrace of this uh, religious right, uh, you know, pro-gun kind of uh, 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 red state uh, uh, cultural politics, so pro-religious. I'm, I'm struck by. For example, I, I see people confessing Christian faith on Fox News uh, occasionally. They'll, someone will come on, a guest on one of the shows, and they'll talk about their faith and whatnot. Um, anyway, I'm rambling. I, the, Trump will be here, and then he'll be gone. The impact on the Republican Party seems to me that it's going to be long-lasting, and I'm, I'm groping around to try to characterize. It seems to me that part of it is in the sense of America's role in the world, which is being, it seems to me, oriented much more in terms of a kind of uh, internal self-interest, uh, instrumental, and less in terms of a sort of idealistic post-World War II uh, liberal order over which America presides on behalf of mankind kind of thing. Uh, and it, I don't know what happens on the racial front. I mean, we're like this. We're like, we're like this uh, on some of these, uh, on some of these, issues, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's strange and very hard to predict. You know, I wouldn't have predicted Trump being elected, so I won't make any predictions about his re-election. But when he when he goes, um, perhaps natural causes. You know, he's an he's an older guy; doesn't seem to be in great health, angry all the time. Um, you know, when he goes, it's it's like, do how many people are true Trumpists, and how many made a deal with the devil to go along with him? Like we know, Paul Ryan agreed to just like work with him and try to like keep him on the straight and narrow, according to Paul Ryan. But now he's denouncing him. There's some. You know, you see people coming up, younger people. Um, there's this guy, uh, Getz or Gertz, who's a representative from Florida, um, who seems kind of like a, a mini Trump, a younger guy. There's a couple senators, this uh, guy you just gave a speech that people are angry about. Uh, I think his name is Hawley from Missouri, where, which he de denounced like the cosmopolitan elite. Um, but if Trump, you know, let's say Trump has a heart attack tomorrow and Mike Pence becomes president, um, Will the Trumpy aspect of the GOP that he introduced will it just kind of fade away and get more towards a George W. Bush esque policy because because Pence kind of seems so. like a George W. Bush light to me. Um, and then what what are the and then what are the voters looking for? Like you know they like Trump because he said what other people weren't and he was part of the 
entertainment, political entertainment complex that, you know, everyone is immersed in with reality TV and cable news. Uh, and let me, let me put it this way. Uh, I think he's awakened the uh, white identity politics uh, thing and that that won't go back to sleep again. Uh, that's not usually the way that I want to talk because that's that's what people on the left will always say. And they will overemphasize it often, in my view. But uh, I think at the end of the day, that's kind of what it comes down to. And uh, that genie doesn't go back in the bottle. Those people come into a, a sensibility that then becomes an, a, a, a basis around which uh, political identity can be organized. And there's a lot of incentives for people. You've mentioned a few of them. I hadn't known about them uh, to play to that. So and, and especially since the other side, quote unquote, is itself deeply enmeshed in an identity politics frame. I mean, these things are seems to me they support each other. I'm not saying white identity politics was created by people of color, but I do think that it that it's a symbiotic, positively reinforcing interaction across both sides of the thing. So um, yeah. I, I don't see that going away. And uh it, it does seem like a fault line that'll that'll organize American politics for some time to come. Yeah, and you can you can see the I think that's that dynamic is right, and you can see the um, you know Democrats are becoming more Trumpian at least in their like rhetoric and the way they conduct themselves in reaction to Trump. Like that congressman, congresswoman Pleb, who said like get the motherfucker out at one point, and yeah. people were dropping their you know handkerchiefs about, about that. But yeah, it's kind of like outrage and using social media to get people uh, riled up. Like it seems like Democrats are, some are learning lessons from that. And is, I, I think, I think a good campaign theme for whoever is the Democratic nominee would just be a return to normalcy because I feel like the majority of the country is tired of the constant craziness and would just like to get back to their regular lives and not pay attention to the news anymore. So, so that's one way you could go just be like, okay, let's just get a boring person like maybe Joe Biden um, to, just, you know, everyone will take it down three notches and it's not going to be constant madness and craziness. And then an alternate way would be like, no, we need someone, a bomb thrower, um, you know, someone who can really take it, take it to Trump and like turn things around, not just like go back to how they were in 2015. So I, I have no idea which, which would be more appealing to people. Yeah. I should probably uh, hang it up here. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, thanks, Len, for coming on special crossover episode of Culturally Determined and the Glenn Show. So people know that your podcast is on, uh, blog ads and YouTube and are in the blog ads, uh, podcast feeds, uh, as is, as is this show. Um, so thanks to all of our viewers and listeners. And thank you, Glenn. And we'll see you again next time. Okay, Aria. Take care. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Hits will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Hits programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.